0: ...relatives and other witnesses to the events described herein. Dialogue, even that from World War II, is taken directly from interviews I conducted with people who were there and witnessed the events. Everything was checked against multiple sources whenever possible. While researching the dangers of shipwreck diving, I was struck by a remark the divers made about depth. The mystery U-boat, they said, lay in such deep, dark waters that occasionally they could do little more than dive at shadows... It occurred to me then that there were shadows cast throughout the story by the fallen crewmen, by World War II, by the seeming infallibility of written history, by questions the divers came to ask about themselves as men. For six years Chatterton and Kohler were shadow divers. For six years they went on a remarkable journey. I wrote this book to take you there with them. Book of Numbers Brielle, New Jersey, September, 1991 Bill Nagel's life changed the day a fisherman sat beside him in a ramshackle bar and told him about a mystery he had found lying at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Against his better judgment, that fisherman promised to tell Nagel how to find it. The men agreed to meet the next day on the rickety wooden pier that led to Nagel's boat, the Seeker, a vessel Nagel had built to chase possibility. But when the appointed time came, the fisherman was not there. Nagel paced back and forth, careful not to plunge through the pier where its wooden planks had rotted away. He had lived much of his life on the Atlantic, and he knew when worlds were about to shift. Usually that happened before a storm or when a man's boat broke. Today, however, he knew it was going to happen when the fisherman handed him a scrap of paper, a hand-scrawled set of numbers that would lead to the sunken mystery. Nagel looked into the distance for the fisherman. He saw no one. The salt air blew against the small seashore town of Brielle, tilting the dockside boats and spraying the Atlantic into Nagel's eyes. When the mist died down, he looked again. This time he saw the fisherman approaching. A small square of paper crumpled in his hands. The fisherman looked worried. In the whispers of approaching autumn... Brielle's rouge is blown away, and what remains is the real Brielle, the locals' Brielle. This small seashore town on the central New Jersey coast is the place where the boat captains and fishermen live, where convenience store owners stay open to serve neighbors, where fifth graders can repair scallop dredges. In Brielle, when the customers leave, the town's lines show, and they are the kind grooved by the thin difference between making a living on the water and washing out. The Seeker towers above the other boats tied to this Brielle dock, and it's not just the vessel's sixty-five-foot length that grabs one's attention. It's the feeling from her battered wooden hull and nicked propellers that she's been places. Conceived in Nagel's imagination, the Seeker was built for a single purpose, to take scuba divers to the most dangerous shipwrecks in the Atlantic Ocean. Nagel was forty years old then a thin, deeply tanned, former snap on Tools salesman of the year. To see him here, waiting for this fisherman in his tattered T-shirt and thrift shop sandals, the gym beam he kept his best friend slurring his motions, no one would guess that he had been an artist, that in his day Nagel had been great. In his twenties, Nagel was already a legend in shipwreck diving, a boy wonder in a sport that regularly kills its young. In those days, deep wreck diving was still the province of the adventurer, Countless shipwrecks, even famous ones, lay undiscovered at the bottom of the Atlantic, and the hunt for those wrecks, with their bent metal and arrested history, was the motion that primed Nagel's imagination. His neighborhood was the New York and New Jersey shipping lanes, waters that conducted freighters, ocean liners, passenger vessels, and warships about the business and survival of America. In the 1970s and 1980s, scuba equipment was still rudimentary, Not much advanced past 1943, when Jacques Cousteau helped invent the system of tanks and regulators that allowed men to breathe underwater. Even at 130 feet, the recreational limit suggested by most scuba training organizations, a minor equipment failure could kill the most skilled practitioner. In searching for the most interesting wrecks, Nagel and the sport's other kings might descend to 200 feet, or deeper, virtually begging the forces of nature to flick them into the afterlife practically demanding their biology to abandon them. Men died, often, diving the shipwrecks that called to Nagel. Early divers like Nagel had bad experiences every day. The sport eagerly shook out its dabblers and sightseers. Those who remained seemed of a different species. They were physical in their world orientation and sudden in their appetites. But not Nagel. In the sport's brawniest era, he was a man of the mind. He devoured academic texts, reference works, novels, blueprints, any material he could uncover on historical ships until he could have stood in the dockyards of a dozen eras and built the boats alongside the workers. Ordinary divers would come upon a shipwreck and see the melange of bent steel and broken wood, the shock of pipe and wire as a cacophony of crap, an impediment that might be hiding a compass or some other prize. Viewing the same scene, Nagel repaired the broken parts in his mind and saw the ship in its glory. One of his greatest finds was a four-foot-tall brass whistle from the paddle-wheeler Champion, a proud voice that had been mounted on the ship's mast and powered by a steam line. The whistle was majestic, but the most beautiful part of the discovery was that underwater it looked like a worthless pipe. Floating amid the wreckage, Nagel used his mind's eye to watch the ship break and sink. He knew the ship's anatomy and as he imagined it coming apart, he could see the whistle settle, right where that seemingly worthless piece of pipe lay. After Nagel recovered two helms from the British tanker Coimbra in a single day, finding one helm once in a career was rare enough. His photograph was hung, alongside that of Lloyd Bridges, in the wheelhouse of the Sea Hunter, a leading dive charter boat of the time. He was twenty-five. To Nagel, the value in artifacts like the brass steam whistle lay not in their aesthetics or their monetary worth, but in their symbolism. It is an odd sight to see grown men covet teacups and saucers and build noble display cases to these dainty relics. But to divers like Nagel, these trinkets represented exploration, going off the charts. It was only time before Nagel's instinct delivered him to the Andrea Doria, the Mount Everest of shipwrecks. The grand Italian passenger liner had collided with the Stockholm, a Swedish liner, in dense fog off Nantucket Island, in 1956. Fifty-one people died. 1,659 were rescued before the liner sank and settled on her side at a depth of 250 feet. Over time, Nagel penetrated the wreck in places long relegated to the impossible. His mantle at home became a miniature Doria museum. Nagel decided to own the Doria's bell. People thought he was nuts. Scores of divers had searched for thirty years for the Doria's Bell. Nagel went to work. He studied deck plans, books of photographs, crew diaries. He would need days, maybe even a week, to pull it off. No charter boat, however, was going to take a diver to the Doria for a week. So Nagel, who had saved a good bit of money from his snap-on tools days, decided to buy a dive boat himself, a vessel constructed from his imagination for a single purpose, to salvage the Doria's Bell. That boat was the original Seeker, a 35-foot main coaster. In 1985, Nagel recruited five top divers, men who shared his passion for exploration, and he made this arrangement. He would take the group to the Doria at his expense. The trip would be a dedicated one, meaning the divers went with one purpose. To recover the bell. For the first few days on the wreck, the divers stuck to Nagel's plan. They found nothing. Nagel abandoned the bow of the Doria where he and his team had been searching and rerouted to the stern. No one had ever been to the stern. Yet by conceiving the Doria as a single breathing organism rather than as detached twenty-foot chunks of wood and steel, Nagel and the others allowed themselves to look in unlikely places. On the fifth day, they hit pay dirt. There was the Andrea Doria's bell. Nagel was among the immortals. Soon an idea began percolating in Nagel's imagination. What if he could run the Seeker full-time as a charter boat for divers? This was Nagel's life and business in the late summer of 1991, as Brielle shut down for the season and returned to the rhythms of its regulars. With the sun setting, Nagel took a short walk across the dock, through the cratered, dirt parking lot, and into an establishment seemingly placed there for him by God. The Harbor Inn was open late year-round. It served Jim Beam. Nagel was thirsty. No one quite recalls when they started calling it the Horrible Inn, but everyone can tell you why. Hardcore smokers choked on the mushroom cloud of cigarette smoke that hovered over the bar. Bathroom smells wafted with impunity into the small grill area. Over the years,